0: More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. We will be in um, Daniel chapter 5. If you want to turn there or open your device, we'll also have um, most of the verses up on the screen this morning. Um, Again, um, sometimes as you're teaching through a section, um, a historical narrative like this, Sometimes you want to bring out just kind of the main thrust of that message, and you can do that by um, reading through the whole passage all at once up at the front and then go back and try to bring out some of the, the points and bring out the, the main idea of the message. Um, we're, this week we're going to again, uh, like last week, we're going to read sections of that and uh, just kind of track through the story. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, this um, particular um section as we've went through the book of Daniel. um, I almost brought this up at the front, but I didn't know if it would make sense. And so uh, the first few weeks, but um, in Daniel 5, Daniel 4 and 5, we see this come true where actually um, this is called a chiasm. And so um, this is a chiastic structure in the book of Daniel. Um, So this is a literary device that writers, Use to bring out the main point of the whole book of the Bible. Sometimes it's just a section of scripture. Um, So there are Psalms where they take the Hebrew alphabet and they would start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and they may go through all of the letters and they build into it. And so it kind of goes like a, like starting here and they would move inward, 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 and they get to the middle. Hebrew letter, and that's the main point. So those two sentences, or those three or four sentences in that psalm, that's the main point of that whole psalm, and then they build their way back out of it based off of that foundation. So they build up to the foundation, and then here's the main point, and they build back out of it. So the book of Daniel is a true uh, chiastic structure. So chapter 1, some things that God wanted to kind of open, up with, and, and we spent some time on that a couple of weeks, looking at God was saying, "This is all about me. This isn't the story about Daniel. This isn't the story about Judah. This isn't the story of having a hero about Daniel. This is me. I want you to see me, my fame name spreading." Um, and then chapters two, it aligns with chapter seven, actually. There are some things that correlate with chapter 2 and chapter 7. And then also chapter 3 and chapter 6 have some correlations. You get to chapter 4 and 5, and they bring out the central focus of the book, and then it'll build its way out through the rest of the chapters. So it's interesting because we kind of like the story of the fiery furnace. Like, that's the exciting part, right? We like that story of the Daniel and the lion's den. Yet God is drawing us into the center here and so um before we get into that i'll bring out what that is in just a second but um I want to explain a little bit of the context also because chapter 5 we've had a huge transition and so in chapter 4 we had King Nebuchadnezzar and um, this is actually 25 years after the end of chapter 4. So at the end of chapter 4 um, we see King Nebuchadnezzar and we see that there's been this, it looks like repentance so remember 50-50 scholars kind of believe that some people say that Nebuchadnezzar came to faith that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven that after the 7 years when he was out grazing. He he had a mental disorder, and God lowered and humbled him, and he was grazing in the field like an animal. And then at the end, what he comes up and says, if you remember, he says this, at the same time, and this is the end of chapter four, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. After he had just just completely refuse the Lord's word. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so that's that's the end of chapter four. And then we have a 25-year gap before chapter 25 starts. Um, we get to see in that time period, if you remember in chapter, um, I think it's chapter 2, um, we get to see that was the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. So chapter 2 starts out with um, the second year of his reign. Well, it was 43 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. End of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Um, now we go on to chapter 5, and so um, what happens after Nebuchadnezzar's death is about three or four guys take over as king. So one guy, this was his son, and his, his nickname was ev- literally Evil, Evil Morodic. Mer- um, he's described in 2 Kings in Jeremiah 52, 2 uh, Kings 25. He, he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, um, Ner-ga- Nergal-Sherazar, Nergal-Sherazar. After only two years of reign, and then I mean he, that guy's mentioned in Jeremiah 39. If you want to go look that up, he only reigned for four years, and then he dies of natural causes. And then a uh, uh, next guy is Labora Sorkod. Laborus Sorkod starts reigning. He's only a child, and he has some mental um, problems, some mental illnesses, and uh, diminished mental capacity. And he only ruled nine months when he was beaten to death by a gang of conspirators. Sad story, right? So, this is getting bad, right? Um, One of those conspirators was a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus was married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So, Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4 that we track with, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, his daughter's married to this guy, Nabonidus. Nabonidus has a son named Belshazzar. That's who we're introduced to in this. So, 25 years later, here we find ourselves in chapter 5. So, As we go into this, um, you can show you can see chapters four and five. What's going to be brought out is this idea in chapter four that pride is one of the things that is the biggest assault to God in His holiness and His glory, the pride of man. So you think through Lucifer. We've heard the stories. Just just created being so gifted, and what did he decide? I think I want to be God. Adam and Eve. Hey, God, yeah, God's giving you this stuff, but man, wouldn't it be great to be just like God? And actually, he's afraid that you're going to become like him if you eat this. So do you see pride? Small, created beings. And so in chapter 4, we see pride humbled and a correct response. And in chapter 5, we see pride humbled, but it's ultimate destruction and death. And so we can see for, for Israel for Judah, why would God want them to focus on in on chapters 4 and 5? Why would he want Judah to do that? Because this happening to Judah, the, the very fact that Babylon has been in control of them is because of their pride, right? Their continued idolatry, continued idolatry and all the Old Testament God's been screaming this to them. For us today, it's the same significance. That that pride that's it, and I hope that there's some things that maybe we, we draw out some things that you'll be able to see that. Um, also, just in the, the context here, um, we're introduced to this Belshazzar Um this is the grandson, and, and the text is going to use this word father. Your father, it's not talking about his father. It's talking about um, the, the wording father is like our father Abraham. So sometimes the, the Old Testament uses the word father meaning your great-grandfather or your many, many great, 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 great-grandfather. So this was probably his grandfather, but we use the word father, don't be confused by that. Um we know the date on this. This is kind of rare. So we know that the Medo-Persians, they did come in and invade and take over Babylon on, I think, I think it's either October 13th, um, 539. So this is actually the day of October 12th, 539. So historically, we have lots of other history, history books that, that support this. So, and that's, that's just if you get in those conversations with lost people and they're like, well, the Bible just has made up stories. No, actually, you can read secular Extra biblical um, books that, that tell us this is a fact. This happened on this date. And so um, we know the date here. Um, Daniel 5 is the point in Daniel that God expected or exposed not only another king walking in pride, needing the grace and mercy of God, but also this key idea. And so this is it that, that we, like Nebuchadnezzar, and we, like Belshazzar, are exposed, offering worship to idols while neglecting the one true God. Um, so I want you to think through that today as we go through worshiping idols, giving worship to idols while neglecting the one true God. Um, in this chiasm, it's been building towards this. This is the point God's making. His point to Israel, reading and hearing and watching these stories. His point to us, reading and hearing and watching these stories. It should have been familiar, Israel, the Deuteronomy stuff, the Leviticus stuff, all these other Old Testament books. You should know this, Israel, but also for us. Not only do we have the Old Testament, we have all of God's redemptive history from Genesis to Malachi, but we have the the clear picture of Christ coming and the gospel. Church, this should be clear to us. Offering worship to idols while we're neglecting one true God. Um, So, um, think through all the different ways, because that, that's what we struggle with, right? Giving worship to idols while neglecting the one true God. Now, a church group might think, well, no, I, I'm, I don't do those things. I don't bow down to little things in my house. I don't bow down to false idols and things. But think think through just, is it comfort, pleasure? Those are two of my favorites, And there's a lot of ripple effects underneath those of how I, what things I set up in my life and pursue to bring comfort and pleasure, right? So a lot of people spend a lot of their time doing things to set up so they can have comfort and pleasure. Some people would even go all to the 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 whole. Goal at 22 or 23 is I want a career where I can retire early at 52 because from 52 or 55 on, I just want to relax and play golf. It's all about me. I'll work hard for 25 years so I can get that comfort and pleasure. Set their whole life that way. Um, relationships. Sometimes it can be just people that you want to be around. This person that you have to have, this group of people. We see it in, in, in kids seeking popularity. Man, they're being inundated with the like. So it was always pressure on all of us to, you know, to be liked and all that. Well, well, now you get this face front thing and you're, no, I didn't get liked. I, I put up a, a post or I put a picture of myself and I got one instead of 3,000. Or this YouTuber has you know 1.5 million followers. It's just a slap in the face. And so all the, the youth books kind of talk about that. So relationships, being liked, self, possessions, status. All these different forms. Uh, maybe it's looks in, in your bodies. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's um, control, money, greed. And then this one, most probably the most dangerous and deceptive, spiritual pride. The ones who have the book, the ones who have the gospel, the ones who have Jesus, and yet we walk in spiritual pride. It's so deceptive. It's such a blind spot. The warning is, with all that we've seen and with all, with all we've known and even all that he's provided for daily life and, and all that he's accomplished for us in Christ, in our eternal life and salvation, the warning is, you continue to love idols and neglect me. You treat me as small and common and neglect treating me as the true almighty God. This isn't just for the crowd listening around Nebuchadnezzar's time or Belshazzar's time. You continue to treat me small. And it seems so small. It seems so subtle. But it's an extreme hostile attack to God's glory. So let me pray as we go into this first section. Father, we do come just praying that you would allow us to see Those of us who have put our trust in you, who have understood the gospel and understood what Christ has accomplished, we pray that you would allow um, the Holy Spirit to just soften our hearts, to remove blinders, for us to see the different forms of pride that we have. Father, for, for the people around us in this city, would you allow us to be a light and be a people who communicate the love of Christ instead of having the huge blind spot of spiritual pride? God, we know that pride is such a subtle, deceptive thing. And so would you mortify pride? Would you kill pride in us and provide an environment of humility and grace? Would you allow Sojourn Church to be a people, not a building, but a people who truly embrace grace, who are not afraid of grace, but are aware, self-aware of our own selves and our own sin, that you would receive much glory? We pray for some of the churches around us, God, that, that the true Jesus Christ, the true gospel would be going out. We know that we're in a city with many different messages. Sometimes that that true Jesus can get distorted, so I pray for some of the churches around here, whether it's First Baptist in, in Broken Arrow, whether it's um, the, the, the Assembly out in Broken Arrow, whether it's um, New Beginnings Church out in Bigsby, whether it's uh, Woodland Acres over here just a couple of miles away, Southern Hills Life Church victory god would you allow the gospel the true gospel of christ to be captivating to people would you would you bring people into the kingdom and god as we start trying to do outreach to this area that we're in father there are many many without you this day many many who whether it's poorness of pride or the exalted loftiness of pride in what they have or own or status That they would need you. They would need what Christ has done. So we pray that you would allow us to be messengers of that gospel and grace. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's look at this first section here in in Daniel 5, 1 through 12. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood In stone. So most scholars believe that this is a huge, extravagant party of about 2,000 to 2,500 people. So um, last week I even had a picture of the city of Babylon. Remember? It had the huge, huge walls, and and then it had about 50, uh, I mean, 170 different towers, so they were well protected. And then inside those walls was another set of walls. Um, And so they thought this was this city that was impenetrable. And they're having this huge, huge feast of of the highest status of people, about 2,500 of these lords and and all these um, fancy people. And so um, it was also an arrogant display because... Um, History tells us that this very night, the Medo-Persians had been coming in day after day. They had shut off supplies so the city couldn't get supplies. So that's besieging the city where they can't get some of the supplies in and nothing can go out. And this very day, the next morning, the Medo-Persians have been camped outside. They're going to go in and attack and they're going to ransack the city and Babylon is taken out. And so if you remember, that actually fulfills what had happened in chapter 1 with the statue. Remember, it said, Babylon, you're going to fall. This is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the head. You're the gold. And it's about to go down. And so it fulfills this. But as this army, the Medo-Persians are outside, this arrogance like there's nothing that can happen to us. Let, let's celebrate and party. And so this, this, this night of partying and debauchery is going on. Um, they think that they're, they cannot be penetrated. And so you see the, 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 the situation here is just full of pomp and circumstance, this elite crowd. And then they go and bring in the, Isra- the, the, the vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple. From, from the house of God. So if you remember that in the first um, couple of chapters there, we see Belshazzar is not content to simply eat, drink, party, as it were, that he interrupts the party to show off even more. Go, go get the vessels of gold and silver that we took from Judah, from, from their temple. And so, you and I, we kind of feel that. Like, if you've read some of those Old Testament stories, it was like, it's kind of like if some guy's like walking, they're carrying these like little holy vessels, and one falls off, and they like pick it up, like that guy, like, you know, like died. Like, man, God's serious here. And so, these people had, Nebuchadnezzar had went in and, and stolen thousands upon thousands of these vessels that they used inside the temple. So, these holy um, vessels. And, and, but they had put them right alongside. In Babylon, other vessels that they used to worship false gods. So, so vessels and, and dinnerware that was used for satanic worship, and they placed these vessels. Now, why did God let them do that? Why didn't God just slay the first four or five guys that you know went in and you know followed their orders and started grabbing these vessels out of the temple and just like just blows the place up? Because what what happens here is we understand this. We can feel and kind of be kind of scared, like, man, what's going to happen here? What if my sin and your sin are just as much of an extreme hostile attack as those guys going and getting those vessels that's been sitting around the satanic stuff, and now they're using them just for their own revelry and debauchery? Remember Jesus, when he's talking, he says, You've heard that it was said if you commit murder, but I tell you, if you had anger in your heart, you've committed murder. You've heard that it was said that if you commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery. So do you see how spiritual pride minimizes my own sin? And magnifies other sin and other people's sin. And what a comforting, convincing lie. It's all the same to God. Um, so what a comforting, convincing lie. God wants us to know you're exposed, offering worship to idols that you don't even realize that you're walking in. Instead of giving me the glory I deserve. Um God's playing a little game here. A little reminder. Uh, we used to play the uh, a little game with the boys. Um, it was a reminder. We we called it expectations. It was every that we went into Walmart or restaurants or uh, people's houses, small groups, um, just going over for dinner, basically anywhere other humans resided. We kind of learned after some time, like we can't just like pull up to their house or pull up to Walmart and just like open the doors and just go in. So many of you may have done the same thing. So we had to stop and have these little four and five 10 15 minute expectation talks as you're going in. And it's like, you know, number one rule we're not hyenas. Or we're going to act like humans. We scare the other high, hy- the other humans if we go into Walmart or their house and just act like hyenas so that that scares the other. So let's, let, let's, let's be humans. And so we had to learn how to do that. And you know, the other just <laughs> Jones and just <laughs> excited to go do whatever. And so there's three of them. It seems like 10, like a tornado. And so, um, God didn't give us like very, just like dogful kids. He gave us very passionate and just excited. And so um, they, we would have to have these expectation talks. Um, when um, God is sharing this with them, God wanted to remind them um, of, this is the same thing I brought out in chapters 1 and chapter 2. This is a reminder. You should have been picking up on this. I, I've been doing this repeatedly for you. We're having this these reminders and expectation talks. God wanted everyone to know from the beginning that he's this sovereign God who allowed Judah to be captured. Remember that? At the very first, he said, and this is Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. God was saying, I did this. Don't, don't be mistaken. I did this. I'm the central player here. Not Daniel, not this king. He said, and the Lord gave, God gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So these holy things, and so you think through, think about the humility and the patience and the long suffering that the God shows in just allowing those vessels to be taken off into Babylon to be put in this this house of false idols, satanic worship. And just a side note, um, what's your view of the Old Testament God? Is he continually just overwhelmingly merciful, just slow to anger? Is is that your view of the Old Testament God, or is it the white bearded guy who's kind of angry and just like, as soon as something happens, like bam? And Jesus, the nice Jesus, is like, man, my father's just golly, I can't wait till I get to hit the earth. Like they'll really love me. Like I'm just, I'm just a different way of handling things, you know. Like and he's sitting over on the on the bench right now for three thousand years. Sometimes that's our view of God. So you've got to realize that the times when 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 God is slow to anger and allows people to do hideous things and horrible things happen, that's Jesus, and that's God the Father, and that's the Holy Spirit. And when judgment comes down and the, the, there's a the huge storm and the, the ark is needed because every living thing is dead, that's Jesus. And that's God the Father, and that's the Spirit. So we have to have a good understanding of how God works. Um, So so think through. God's point then is, I did this. I'm letting this happen. The sovereign one who allowed this to take place, it was God's discipline on Judah for their turning away from God. In Daniel 5, God's bringing up comparisons again like he did earlier to contrast the false gods with the one true God. He wanted people to know that this sin is not going to go unpunished, and we're going to see it. Anytime God acts like this, um, again, you have people around you who are going to have views of God, and we've got to be able to say, to show with them, oh, that's not Old Testament, white-bearded, angry God. That's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God the Father. And so you have to have a a good biblical um, um, understanding of of what God is like. So Daniel 5, let's go into verses 5 through 9. We see this hand writing on the wall. So immediately in the middle of this huge party going on, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So now, we don't understand this in our context, in our culture, but in those days, this moved from just a story, a narrative, to a little bit of satirical humor. So there are some funny things that start happening, and this is God actually downplaying the other gods. So remember the story of um, the ten plagues? with Moses remember that and you probably found out in you know kids Sunday school class each one of those plagues was tied to a false god so remember that and so it was God going oh 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 Egypt you think your god's powerful here's the first plague down here's the second plague down i'm the ruler of all eternity Third plague, your God, he's a false God, he's down. So he's doing the same thing with here. Remember, he's doing the same thing here because remember it just said that they, they drank in praise of these other gods. And God's going, your gods, really? And, and part of the reason they felt so secure at this huge party, even though the Medo-Persians are camped outside ready to attack the next day, why? Why were they drinking praise to God? They felt like their gods were protecting them. We know that's what, that tribal people today, other people believe their gods are protecting them the same way we believe our God. So they thought um, they're, they're safe because they're false gods, and God is one. There is only one true God, and you're neglecting me. You're acting as if I'm nothing. So he, he brings in this striking humor, some intentional things that God is doing in this. So God's doing um, this thing, just showing this this prideful king that he is the one. That's powerful. So even this term, his limbs gave way. So look there um, in, in that verse uh, what is it, 6, his limbs gave way. Well, in, in Aramaic, actually, and remember from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 7, it went from Hebrew language to Aramaic, so the whole world could know because Aramaic was the, the bigger language. And so for the Hebrews, that was just Israel. God used chapter 1 for just Hebrew, and then chapter 2 through 7, it's Aramaic. So the whole world would hear these stories, and they understood about a king, and his high status, and, and, and in Aramaic, well, the picture was, it actually meant his knots were loosed. So what they believed, that that was probably his bowels, where he lost control uh, of his bodily function. So you see this picture here, crowds reading that then, especially um, different peoples, they would read that and think, his, his knots were loose. oh, when he saw this handwriting on the wall, He lost control of his body functions. So then um, the next thing that happens, as you see the next situation, so so taking that in consideration and knowing all this, and and you may think, like, that's not a big deal, but if I'm up here talking right now and reading from this, and we all saw a, a human hand, writing something that we all saw, like we wouldn't just be cool with. Like we can act like we read stories in the Bible and think that we would behave differently. Like even when Jesus just healed people, that we would just walk up like first time like, oh, you must be the Son of God. I'll repent of my sins. I'm going to ask you into my heart right now. In the name of Jesus, I confess these things like you wouldn't. You just wouldn't. Or, or things in the Old Testament, when, when they, you know, when, when the king or someone did something, and the leader, and they, they did some big idol, you probably would just be like everyone else, and like everyone else is going outside, and we're doing this. I, they brought this, oh, it's beautiful. We're poor. They have this huge gold statue. Oh, everyone's bowing down. We must do this. We always take, like, we're the, we're the ones who wouldn't do that, right? If there was a hand writing something on the wall that appears, you wouldn't just be calm and just like, oh, go on with your story. So, so just know there's some crazy things going on here, but, but it's, they, don't, they don't try to paint that deep picture. The next thing that happens in 10 through 12, it continues with this humiliating scenario. So the queen, so this is his mom, Belshazzar's mom. Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. In that culture, for a king, especially this proud, pompous king having this huge celebration, for Mama to have to come to step in, like, "Oh goodness, look, you're making a fool of yourself," and to have to come in, and so her language, even as they read it early on, um, we would see they would see it as very funny, very funny, like this entitled brat, you're losing it. Like, you should be able to one you know the story. You know about Belteshazzar, who is Daniel. It looks like you've soiled yourself, son. Look, so she has to come in and remind him of this. And so it's actually a public rebuke to her son. And so that didn't happen to kings. Women didn't speak out and have to tell their sons what they knew, especially if he was the king. So mama comes in and rescues. And so this would have been incredibly humiliating. And it's almost, I even look at our language there. Oh, king, uh, live forever, you little twerp. Let's pull yourself together. You're, you're blushing. Looks like you've soiled yourself. Um, let me remind you, Daniel, your father, you know, the king, the powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, he knew what to do. You're not doing this. He was a good king, so, and he, so he handles it that way. And so a lot of the commentators said, there's probably a lot of tonation added to this. So she reminds Daniel about, she reminds her son, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, about Daniel. So then, probably in that kind of tonation, you know, we text and you can read tonation into people's texts nowadays, and you can kind of accidentally read that like, are they saying it like this? So a lot of commentators would say that there's a little bit of some some satire in this, but also some intentional wording by God. And so look what happens next in verses 13 through 17. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You were that, Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. So he's putting Daniel in his place. Oh, you're you're that Daniel, one of the exiles, putting him in his place, one of the slaves that we brought from Judah. I've heard... um, Of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Look at Daniel's response. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So remember how Daniel was respectful and how he treated Nebuchadnezzar, who was kind of a Hitler-esque type guy, and with this guy. And Daniel's probably in his 70s now, this phony, fake prideful king, who tried to put Daniel in his place, he's probably going like, hey, you need some diapers, and yes, I'll do this, but let me tell you something. I don't need to be the third ruler of this kingdom. This kingdom is falling tomorrow. Some commentators actually believe that God had showed Daniel that this is ending tonight. So um, you can see kind of some tonation that happens there. Look at uh, Daniel um, 5, 18 through 23. Notice that Daniel first reminds Belshazzar of context. Um, so he's, he's kind of going, think back with me. So notice again, in the same vein, hey, you kind of took some shots at me. I'm just a little slave boy from Judah. That Daniel, notice the comparison, what, he, what he's getting across. And the crowd probably got this understanding, but also the readers afterwards would definitely get this understanding. He does a contrast of Nebuchadnezzar, the one king beforehand, and then you, Belshazzar. So he goes, O king, the most high God, so he first gives glory to God, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Hint, hint. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages they trembled and they feared before him. Comparatively with you, Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, notice what happens here. There's a switch. He was brought down. Daniel brings into this context, I want to remind you, someone outside of this powerful king who had all authority and power did what he wanted. He was nothing. Something outside of him had control. He was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of the beast. So Daniel is saying, this most high God, he did all this. God is saying, I did all this through Daniel. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So let me just ask, do you want to humble yourself before God? Or do you want God to have to humble you and get your attention another way, to get your focus and heart back with him. Do you want God to have to take you through something to get you to see that he's the one true God, that you've neglected him in following idols? Notice the contrast. He just went into, you know, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, he had all this power and all this, and then he turns to talk about Belshazzar. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. That's the main thrust of chapter 4 and 5. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Remember, God is saying, I'm comparing myself with all these false gods and you're partying and drinking and thinking that your safety is provided by them and you're praising them. They are nothing compared to me. You have exalted yourself and you don't even realize it. Anyone sitting here today that that statement might fit? But you, you have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of these things about God, you have not humbled your heart. You're proving your case to yourself, to others, to those around you, and even to God. You're lifting up yourself against the Lord in pride. Anyone identify with that this morning? hundreds of different ways, refusing to humble your heart in pride. Yesterday, um, we were um, ran just to Starbucks. as a normal thing on Saturday morning. Just run to Starbucks, and just it's nice. Me and Jamie get to go. And um, so uh, we do the mobile app because we're not idiots. And so... As I step in, usually they, uh, sometimes they'll know it's me, and so you step in the door, There's, you know, like someone standing right here. As I look in and I see, and I just step back because uh, I'm waiting for them to call, and so the person that's standing right there, one foot away, is a person who's probably injured my family more than anyone in my lifetime. Me, my wife, my kids, just everything. And so now you're just standing there. And so, a few seconds pass. I knew I just had to say something. Months, months, years, years. So you got this little window of time. No coincidence that we're in chapters four and five of Daniel. God's doing these things. So I just turn. And just have to say, hey, uh, man, I want to let you know I'm um, everything, all the past. Everything that's happened, it's all forgiven. There's nothing. Um, Christ has forgiven everything, and we forgive. So you'd think, you know, what would be the response? The response is, well, you know, when you guys did this, and so kind of a slap in the face, like, and so, and, and we knew that they probably viewed it like we were the aggressors or something. Not the response you're wanting, right? But yet you've already opened the door and like, hey, everything's forgiven. So I can't go like, well, actually, here's my bullet points. Here's all that you did. And so again, amen. Yeah, like I said, there's probably been hurts on both sides, but I just want you to know um, the blood of Christ has forgiven everything. You're just hoping, like, Sankey, your drink's ready, you know. And so um, I wanted to lay out my case. The feelings were not there. Feelings weren't there. I don't have the capacity to do that. I don't have the currency of that type of forgiveness. The blood of Christ is my currency. My thoughts and my feelings, I I, I have 10,000 things that I can line up about my boys, about myself, the bullet points, feelings. Pride says, You need to know all that you've done to us. You need to know all that you've done. All the thousands of ways that you've impacted my family, and Jesus is just going, hey, I got got this. This is what the cross is all about. I've got this. It's like this voice, so I didn't hear an audible voice, but just this thought. You needed to lose. You feel like you lose when you let go of that. Harboring bitterness, anger, resentment. You let go of proving that you're right, that they did all these things. You let go of showing them all the things that they've done. You let go, and this one's a hard one, of getting the response and the outcome that you want for them to finally admit or to change you just go, no, it's just forgiven. Again, just like this idea of I need you to feel and experience just a tiny piece of the sharp pain forgiveness costs. The humility it takes in the act of forgiveness that has potential to kill and mortify pride. So again, it's no coincidence that like 10-second moment that I've in my head for seven years and the last few months, just all these times. So very important points is that that does not mean that all the feelings and thoughts are fixed now, nor every step in the future is going to work out easy. That's the scariest part. But but the blood of Jesus is my currency. That's not for me. I don't have that. I don't, even the pastor, all my... 10 years in seminary, all the stuff I read and write and think through and pray through, I still, in those moments, don't have it. Also, I don't get to make it conditional on the guarantee that now you'll never do it again, right? I I forgave you, you'll never do it again. Aren't you glad God doesn't treat you that way? Aren't you glad his steadfast love doesn't treat you that way? And also, I want to make it clear, this is not a point be like your godly pastor, so forgiving, so loving. That's not the point at all. I hope you hear, that's not me. That is only Christ that allows that. I want you to hear clearly, I do not have this type of forgiveness in me. So you may have been taught that maybe forgiveness and patience and all those fruit of the spirit they're, they're kind of already in you, and then after you become a believer, I don't believe that at all. The Bible's pretty clear, like I have a very depraved heart evil thoughts about someone who had hurt me in those type of ways, and yet Jesus goes, I got this covered. I, that's what I took on. I took on his sins, her sins, their sins. I, I took that on the cross. So I don't want you to hear that, be like your good pastor. Look how good I am. There may be someone out there listening today who, who needs to let go to forgive someone, someone who has hurt you bad, someone to consider is their pride, spiritual pride, blocking the way of Christ-like progress. This story in Daniel is a story of pride contrasted with God's redemptive love. Some may need to go and just confess that pride to God about someone way in the past, someone in the recent past. Let go of your expectation of what they need to look like or need to do to make it right with you. So stay with me. Connect the dots. What I believe God would want a person hearing this today to say, to learn from this, contrast the example. Belshazzar is finished. He's done. He just doesn't realize it yet. You today, there's a different feast. Do we understand these words that I read earlier in Psalm 145? The real meaning to the depth of these? The Lord is gracious. He's not one to slap you in the face when you mess up Monday. Stupid guy, you sinner, you're just ridiculous. You keep doing this, you keep doing this. That's that's not what he's doing. The Lord is gracious. He's just gracious. He's merciful. He knows that you keep struggling with certain things. He's gracious, he's merciful. Picture him instead of that, of this Luke fifteen, the father running to that son. Doesn't even let him finish telling him all the things that he's done wrong. Just, just this embracing God. Not. You better tell me. You better tell me. He wants us to know. He he wants you, but he wants all of you. And he knows that's scary for us. He knows the things that we keep struggling with and we can't pay him back. You you can't get yourself in a more conditioned, a more acceptable position with him. Prove you're good enough. Stop trying, stop clinging to whatever that is. It's just layers of pride. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Overwhelming, lavishing, overflowing in steadfast love. We view him as standing on the line, ready to pounce in anger, and yet... What's the proof that we've seen in him? I hope that can help some people to, be in, to scratch the surface of changing their view of God. But we like it like that because we get to stay in self-pity or to prove ourselves, which, by the way, both are pride. They're both rooted in pride. So self-pity is my view of myself compared to this, and I feel guilt and shame, Pride. God, I'll prove it to you this time. I'll prove it. Pride. I think, I'm pretty convinced of this, I think that that though many might characterize Christianity as keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules, what I see is this mantra from God of enjoy my mercy, enjoy my mercy, enjoy my grace, enjoy my mercy, enjoy my grace. And we don't even know things. And we can't even talk about really the things that we really need grace and mercy for. Even in our circles, in, in Bible studies, book studies, gospel communities, small groups, you'll hear people talking. If someone says, well, yeah, I'm really struggling with this. And if we're not careful, we go into law mode of, well, I mean, as Christians, we're supposed to do this. And, you know, we, we do this, right? We do this. And you can tell it, it, it's this nervousness, like we, we don't talk about those things, as that would be, but if you can get all the supposed tos, there's no need for Christ. If we're, we're a group of people that have it all together and, and you can just tell people and just give people a bullet point of, of the, here's what I do, there's no need for Christ. And, and I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, So, which is obedience, faithfulness don't matter. So I'm not, not, not saying obedience, faithfulness, righteousness, being pursued, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. I know all the scriptures, hundreds. He who loves me will keep my commandments, will obey my commandments. All through scripture, the entire Bible filled with expectation and exhortation to lovingly live in obedience. I believe that's true. I'm not dropping the bar of righteousness. It just has not been my experience. It has not been my experience. I believe people in our circles, if they'd be honest, That's really what's going on. So we go into performance, keeping it all together, showing people tighter lists of rules. And here's the secret. I think that he knew. He knew that we wouldn't do well. He wired us for worship and then allowed our love mechanisms so it's not just what you think, because a lot of times a Christian message in our circles is, it's on knowledge and thoughts and, you know, this idea of the mind. It's so Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, just, just thoughts, your thoughts, your thoughts. There's something beyond that. It, it's your heart. What you love, you will think about, and you will act towards. And if we don't get to that, what, what, what's the core of that? Because last 30 times you've sinned, was it because you didn't know? No, you knew. I know. I can even have 10 scriptures memorized about it and quote them to myself, and meditate, and I still jump off that cliff. Because that's what I love. Your loves are what are driving you. So it's not this God saying, keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules, but enjoy my mercy, enjoy my grace. If you you would transfer that over and your loves become him, the natural overflow is, is obedience and walking in truth. That may sound incredibly scary to some of you. For some, that sounds like indescribably beautiful and enjoyable, but it's still scary because, like, that's just not the way. Uh, that, that sounds scary. It sounds like you're saying just, well, look, just go and do. No, we're afraid of grace. We're afraid of grace. It's because our our lists, which are sometimes very extra biblical, in some cases, they're what I'm actually depending on to keep me safe and godly. This is what's safe and godly. This little box and these lists. And people are thinking, but what if people were it's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. Not saying that obedience doesn't matter, not saying that, that obedience and, and faithfulness, but that's fear of loss of control that's dominating you. And, and what do you turn to usually is thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. Two types of people, older brothers and younger brothers. One is prone to legalism and, and rules and tight lists. Others are prone to freedom from rules, kind of antinomian. I see some every day walking, maybe maybe building a jog down paths of deceit and destruction, yet so enticing and appealing so it turns into a run and we miss out on grace because pride, pride of self. And then I see others every day. Holding, clinging, controlling, trying to keep it all together, keep it tight and right, so we fear and we miss out on grace. Pride of self, the core of both of those, pride of self. You're offering worship to idols while neglecting the one true God. The idol of self is the last thing that we recognize. Whether it's you pursuing the idol of self and all I want or whether it's a pursuit of the goal of idol of self, and I'll keep all the rules and prove myself. You've lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven. No, I haven't. I'm doing everything I can. I'm the one trying to keep it together. I'm the one keeping the rules. I'm the one living for your glory. You've lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Most of us see Belshazzar as an extreme and obvious attack on God. Yet new versions of Belshazzar's feast are laid out before us every day, and I create my own Belshazzar feasts. So, as we close, the pride of self-willed autonomy, it's the most dangerous for bored Christian culture. It's taking for granted all that God has done. No longer amazed, and it's a heart condition. It's living as if the spiritual war going on around us does not matter because I'm just trying to have a little feast over here. I can't be so committed and so faithful and all because I'm just trying to have a little feast over here. As if we get to opt out of a lifetime of faithfulness, care for the body of Christ, and a cross-bearing life of discipleship. So I'll take the forgiveness package for one and reserved for a later date with no responsibility or expectation of faithfulness on my part. That's the American dream version of Christianity, and it's all pride, and it's a slap in the face to God. In the last part, Daniel says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in a balance and found lacking or wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. What do you think his response would be hearing that? What do you think a good response would be? Before you read the next part, wow! Look at the pride. Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel, come here. He's clothed with purple, a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Pride. It fit really well in our American churches, wouldn't he? Yeah, I hear all of it. I know it. I know the points. We just ignore. Worshiping, idols, neglecting the God who's brought all this to us. So, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want you to consider what are those things that could be leading your life, that the loves of your heart, that could be leading your heart. Ask the Lord this week, maybe not just today, what are those things? Exposed, offering worship to idols while neglecting the one true God. Should be familiar for the church. We, we, know, we understand redemptive history and the gospel. Church, you should know this. So we've seen this beautiful picture of God's holiness and righteous standard and and God's mercy that he's offered and grace that he's offered. We hear it week in and week out. And so for a person to respond by not responding in the correct way would be just foolishness. We see it in Belshazzar, but are you taking the time? It's pointless to come here and to listen to preaching or sing the songs or to serve and do things if, if the heart response is not there. That's pointless. That's what he's after. He wants all of you. One of the most prideful, arrogant things we comfortably do is show up here and not respond accordingly. So here we practice the Lord's Supper as a time where if you're, uh, it's open communion here, meaning that if you're from another body uh, and if you're a believer and you've been baptized, um, th- then you can partake with us. That's open communion. If you're living in patterned sin, we would say do not partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Um, if you're living in patterned sin, and you're if you're not a believer, we would say do not partake of the Lord's supper, but instead take this time to meditate and and ask the Lord and, and ask him I for, for forgiveness and mercy the first time. This is what I need. If you're a person that's um, from another church and, and you're visiting, um, please, if you're in good standing with them and not under church discipline, we would say partake with us. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and let you stand, the ones who want to, and to go and to uh, grab the elements. So, we leave Belshazzar's feast and we know that we have another king, a true king, in the feast that he would bring us to.